Tonight, um, we'll primarily be in John chapter 3, but as we start, if you would, would you please turn with me to Mark 1. Um, I'll be reading out of the NASB tonight, which is a little different. I know the, the Bibles in front of you are the New King James, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to pick one of those up and follow along with us. Um, so we'll be starting with verses 4 and 5 of Mark chapter 1, and I'll read these as we begin. So starting in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of the sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So as we begin tonight, kind of as an introduction, I just want you to picture yourself as a disciple of John the Baptist in A.D. 30, during the time of Christ, um, Put yourself in Judea, in Jerusalem, and you have devoted your life to following John the Baptist. You are so captivated by his sermons, by his preaching, uh, this, this message of repentance that you decided to devote your whole life to following him. And, and so just, just picture this leader of yours who's wearing a, a camel hair tunic with a, a leather belt around his waist, and, and you just are, you're captivated by you watch him berate the Pharisees and Sadducees with much joy for their corrupt religion, and you just watch as cla- uh, crowds of people just flock to him, um, and, and you sit, sit there along the Jordan River as people are all around the banks of the river, and John the Baptist is baptizing them one by one. Um, just think of the, the, the cry, all this emotion that would be going through you as your leader, as it says here in Mark 1, 4, and 5, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem. That's an amazing statement. They were all coming to him. And we know that doesn't mean every last one of them, but there was a great crowd of people following this John the Baptist. Um, and today, we have no shortage of examples of people who seemingly overnight um, explode in popularity. Their fame just blows up. Um, And then we often watch as those same people seem to be destroyed by their fame. Uh, This fleeting fame that sells itself as happiness um, all too often leads leads to misery. And this was, so this is what we'll look at tonight, but this was not the case for John the Baptist. Um, as As his fame decreased, as people began to leave, these crowds began to leave him, it says his joy actually began to increase. And so that'll be the main my main topic tonight. So if you'll turn over with me to John chapter 3, the main point of my message tonight, and I believe the main point of these verses, verses 22 through 30, is what I was saying. John the Baptist found intense joy in humble, in humble Christ-exalting obedience toward God. John the Baptist found intense joy in, a, in humble Christ, Christ-exalting obedience towards God. So let's read together um, John 3, verses 22 through 30. So after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, 
Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said to them, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so tonight I'll be organizing my message um, around five parts or five points. I know we didn't have an outline for you tonight, but, and so these are my five main points. If it's helpful, you can follow along in this way. First, I'll be describing the scene in verses 22 and 24, and then the discussion, verses 25 and 26, and then I'll get into the theology of John, and then the message of John in verse 28, and finally, the joy of John. And so that's the scene, the discussion, the theology of John, the message of John, and then the joy of John. And then we'll, we're going to start out tonight with looking at the scene in verse 22. So read again with me again, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And so that verse starts out with after these things, which kind of leads to the question, after what things? And we know that what it's referring to is in the end of John chapter 2, Jesus cleared the temple for the first time. And then at the beginning of um, John chapter 3, we have the discussion with Nicodemus, um, where these famous discussions say where Jesus said, you must be born again. Um, and so that's what this after these things is referring to. That, referring to. And we know according to uh, John chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem, but now we see in this verse that they're moving into the countryside of Judea. And we're told that Jesus and his disciples, Jesus went with his disciples for two reasons to Judea. And the first was to spend time with his men, probably teaching and training them. And the second reason was to baptize. And we know from John chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but Jesus was having his disciples baptize on his behalf. And so that brings us into verse 23. It says, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming to him and were being baptized. And so this place, Anon, or this word literally means springs or fountains. And to try and pinpoint this location is a little bit difficult. Um, some of the com some commentators, I said, had different opinions about this, but one possible location was 53 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, however, some recent archaeological findings have found another Anon that was about five miles northeast of Jerusalem in a secluded va valley. And both of these locations um, possibly could have been it. I think the second is probably a little more likely because, as we'll, as we'll see, it seems to me that these two baptismal ministries of John and his disciples and Jesus, his disciples, are somewhat close. They're aware of each other. Um, and so I think, that's, I think it's that second location because of that reason. And so verses 22 and 23 kind of give us the who and what and where. And then the next verse, 24, gives us the when in this passage. And so verse 24 says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. And we know what this is referring to. In Matthew 14 and Mark 6, we read of the stories of how John the Baptist was thrown into prison. Um, John, being the bold, outspoken man that he was, rebuked Herod, the leader of Galilee, or was even called the king of Galilee, for taking his brother's wife. And because John rebuked him, 
John was thrown in prison and later to be murdered, actually. And so this verse 24 seems rather obvious. I mean, for John had not yet been in, thrown into prison. It's, in a way, it's kind of like, of course he had not been thrown in prison. Here he is baptizing. But John the Apostle, the writer of this book, did this for a very particular reason. Um, this verse allows us to place this v- event in the timeline of Jesus and in his ministry. And if you are reading through Matthew and Mark's account, um, you'd be tempted to think immediately after Jesus um, was baptized by John and then went through his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted, you'd be thinking to think, well, his, his ministry began and John must have got thrown in prison immediately afterward. But that's not necessarily, that's not what happened. And we know that from this passage in John chapter 3, which is only in John. And we don't find it in this passage in any of the other synoptic gospels. And so we learn here that John's ministry of baptism and Jesus's ministry of baptizing were happening at the same time. Um, which kind of leads to a question, at least in my mind, is why was John the Baptist continuing to baptize when Jesus was just right over the hill baptizing, uh, and him and his disciples were baptizing as well? And I think this leads to our second big point here, the discussion, starting in verse 25. Um, and I'll read this verse again. Therefore there arose a discussion on part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, this word discussion is the same Greek word used in Acts 15.2, where Paul and Barnabas got into a, quote, no small dissension and debate with those who are falsely teaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. And the Apostle Paul used this word to describe dangerous and useless and angry debates in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so this was a heated discussion among um, the disciples of John the Baptist and a Jew, or depending on your translation, Jews. Um, There's a little bit of dispute here. Uh, Some of the more reliable manuscripts seem to point to there just being a singular Jew here. But whether there was plural, whether it was many or just one Jew, I don't think it ultimately matters. What is more important, however, is what was the topic of the discussion. And the verse alludes to this. It says um, they were discussing about purification um, this, this word is only used one other time in all the works of John, and it's rev- uh, used in the chapter before, in chapter 2, verse 6, referring to the Jewish practice of ceremonial washing. However, this, what I think the discuss, this discussion was primarily about was revolving around the baptismal ministries. Um, as, these two, as these two baptismal ministries were going on, this Jew was questioning that. Um, And one theologian I read said this, the word purify or purification may be applied to the baptism as it was an emblem of repentance and purity, and thus it was used by the Jews, by John and Jesus. So this word says about purification. I think that is pointing to this baptismal ministry. And so I see this discussion playing out something like this um, between John's disciples and this Jew. The Jew probably said something like, well, Jesus is baptizing over there. You're baptizing here. Well, which one's greater? Where should we go? Should we go there or here? And which has the greater purification power, purifying power? What should we do? And I think this is where this debate or discussion um, came about. And so I think John's disciples here said, all right, well, this discussion, we need to take this to John. Let's settle this. Take it to John the Baptist. And so that's what they do in verse 26. And it says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. 
And so I'd like to point out three things here that, that reveal the hearts of, these, of John's disciples. Um, the first thing is, um, they weren't, apparently they weren't even willing to use Jesus' name, and they were just referred to him as, He who is with you beyond the Jordan. And if you remember what happened at the Jordan earlier, was John baptized Jesus at the Jordan. So I think, in their mind, they're like, John, this is the one that you baptized beyond the Jordan. Um, second point, uh, notice here that they acknowledge uh, that John had already testified regarding Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 20, John had clearly said, I am not the Christ. And later in verse 34, he, t- he says, I have testified that this is the Son of God. And furthermore, he said, John, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. So it's something, to me, they have enough sense to acknowledge that you testified about him, but they're not believing what he testified about. And then the third point here, look at their use of the word all. They says, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now clearly we know that not all were coming to him. There's no way the Pharisees and the Sadducees were lining up to be baptized. But I mean, I think they're rattled here. Um, this reveals the envious, unbelieving hearts of John's disciples who, who saw Jesus as sort of a competitor kind of like a, a, a rival political opponent who was gaining popularity at their master's expense. Um, the disciples of John, we see here, were not yet disciples of Jesus. They were still more committed to John the Baptist than they were committed to Jesus. Um, their view is, of the Messiah at this point is very distant and cold. I mean, this is the one who John the Baptist referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this leads us into my, my third overall point here, uh, which I'm calling the theology of John. In verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Um, and I, I just like this the little glimpse we see here into John's thinking and his theology. He says, yeah, people are leaving me. They're leaving uh, my ministry of baptism and going to Jesus for one reason, God is sending them. God's giving them over there. He's not giving them to me anymore. He's giving them to Jesus. Um, so God, the, the God of John the Baptist was no passive God of randomness. He knew very clearly what God was doing here. And, so, and, I, and I like to think about, although John was this intense, zealous laborer, he had unprecedented zeal in his, in his preaching, but still he was content at the end of the day to say, well, they're going because God is sending them. And I just even think about this where a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And I was just wrestling in my own heart with this. Do I believe this? Nothing, nothing good or bad, blessing or curse, can come to any man without first passing through the Father's hands. Um, and I th- we see this all throughout Scripture. James 1.17 is a verse that I thought of. It says, every good thing and every Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. So it's very clear, good things come from God. But we also know that both afflictions and hard times and trials come from God. And the greatest maybe example of that is Job. In Job chapter 2, where he says to his wife, Shall we not indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity, adversity? Adversity, excuse me. And then in Job 13, 15, one of my favorite verses, he says, Though he slay me, though God slay me and bring this trial into my life, I will hope in him. Um, And so despite John's disciples being rattled by people beginning to leave his ministry and go after Jesus, uh, John here is unmoved 
resting in the sovereignty of God. And that leads to my fourth main part here, point, uh, the message of John. So this is, what, this is John's message here in verse 28. You, your, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. I mean, this is very clear. The clear implication of what John is saying here is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, um, and John was not. And this was John's goal from the beginning. This was his purpose in life, was to point people to Christ. He was sent to prepare the way. And so John, I just see him as, a, as just a messenger of saying, go to Christ, pointing the way to Christ. And, and, and some, for some reason, I just see John here wanting to ask his disciples, and why are you still here? I mean, the Messiah is over there baptizing. And, and, I'm, and that's the question. I'm, why are they still here? Um, some of the other disciples of John had already gotten it. They had already um, seen J- John pointing to Jesus, and they went, and they left John. And uh, turn with me to just a couple pages to the left to John chapter 1, um, verse 35, and we'll just see a, some, an example of this happening. Um, John 1, 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. I mean, just like that, they're gone. They hear, they hear, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and they go, Okay, that's him, we're gone. So I'm wondering, what are, what are these other disciples still doing uh, here with John? Because um, John was very clear that this was his mission, to prepare the way for Christ. Um, And I think John the Apostle, the writer of this book, John the author, uses the life of John to do this same thing, to point people to Christ. Um, And I thought found this to be interesting. In John chapter 1, there's a lot of of writing given to John the Baptist. We're given a look into his ministry. And then in John chapter 3, we we, we look at the text that that we're working through tonight. And then after that, um, it seems that John just just fades into the background. We don't see much more of John at all. Uh, we see in John chapter 5, Jesus briefly referring to his testimony and what John had testified about. And then the, the only other place we even see a mention of John the Baptist in this gospel is in John chapter 10, which I think is worth looking at. So if you would flip with me over there to John chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 42, or excuse me, verse 40. And this just says, and he, this is speaking of Jesus, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many, many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And look what happened. Many believed in him there. And so I, I just think John the Baptist prepared these people's hearts and this is what that, and they're believing. When Jesus comes there, yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, we believe in him. We're following him. And so that's why this is John's whole goal in life, to point people to Christ. And I think he was very effective at it. Um, so flip with me back to John chapter 3. As we look at my fifth point tonight, um, which I'm calling the joy of John. So verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
So John here uses a familiar analogy, a marriage analogy, to portray the relationship, or his relationship to Christ, and yet there's a slight twist added, um, and, and I believe this analogy is one that we can all relate to, at least to some degree. Um, it's, cle- it's clear here, like in other places in the New Testament, like Ephesians 5, that the bride represents the people of God, and the groom represents Christ, But John the Baptist here likens himself to something new, the friend of the bridegroom, uh, or what we would call it today in our culture is the best man. Um, And so one commentator I read, um, Marvin Vincent, in his New Testament word studies, writes this um, regarding the friend of the bridegroom. He says, In Judea there were two groomsmen, one for the bridegroom and the other for his bride. Before the marriage they acted as intermediaries between the couple At the wedding, they offered gifts and waited upon the bride and bridegroom. They attended them to the bridal chamber, and it was the duty of the friend of the bridegroom to present him to his bride after marriage to maintain proper terms between the parties, especially to defend the bride's good fame. So this, I mean, this was this best man, this friend of the bridegroom had a lot of duties. I don't know if you caught it there, even to escort them to the bridal chamber. Um, Yeah, that's not what bridegroom was our friend of the bride, uh, best men typically do in our culture today. But this, you can see, this was a very intense relationship where they, they did a lot. Um, and so notice here what the friend of the bridegroom does in, this, in these three, or in this verse here. Um, and I, I'll point out that he does three things. It says there, who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So he's doing three things. He's standing, hearing, and rejoicing. And so we'll just briefly look at all three. The first one, he's just standing. And this is the posture of a servant, uh, just kind of humbly ready to do the will of his master. And then it says, he hears him. And, and we know, well, what does he hear? He hears the bridegroom's voice. Um, well, what, what then is the bridegroom saying? And this, um, as I studied this, I found out that this was a proverbial expression um, in Old Testament Hebrew literature, and specifically in Jeremiah. And I'd like to show you this. So if you would, please flip with me back to Jeremiah, and we'll be in chapter 7. So towards the middle of your Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. And then we'll be in chapter 7. And so just to give you a little context, this is the prophet Jeremiah um, standing in the temple gate to declare a judgment on the people of Judah before the coming invasion of Babylon. It was Judah's time was up. Babylon was coming, and here is the judgment. And we'll just look at one verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 34, and it says this, Then I will make to cease from the city, cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the, of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. And I think it's clear here what the phrase, the voice of the bridegroom, means. It means the same thing as the phrases that come right before it and the one right after it, but the two in, before it say the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. So the, the prophet Jeremiah is proclaiming that there will be no joy in Jerusalem on that day. There will be, all the joy will be taken away um, because of this coming judgment. And so although Jeremiah is using this phrase in kind of a negative context, it really is a positive thing. It's the joy. Um, and so flip with me back to John 3. And so John the Baptist here is using it, meaning 
the jo- hearing the joy in the bridegroom's voice. As the bride is presented to him, the friend of the bridegroom hears the joy in the groom's voice. Um, so here, I just think this is a, kind of, it's a neat picture. And we see John the Baptist portrays Jesus, um, the groom, as overjoyed with sinners coming to him. And John, as the friend of the bridegroom, is hearing the joy in Jesus' voice. Um, and so and I, I like this because I think here we see the heart of God towards repentant sinners. And this rev- reminded me of Luke 15.10. And it says, in the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Catch this. There is joy in the presence of the angels. This joy is God's joy over the repentance of one sinner. And so this is what John the Baptist is marveling in, is hearing the voice of the bridegroom, hearing this joy um, in Jesus or God's voice. And so verse, and then, the final thing, the final thing that the, the friend of the bridegroom does is he says he rejoices greatly. And this literally means he rejoices with joy. Um, one commentator I read says this, Intense joy is thus ascribed to the one who is the minister of the bliss of another. Now, I'll read that again. Intense joy is ascribed to the one who is the minister of the bliss or the joy of another. So John is overjoyed knowing that sinners are making their way to Jesus and that Jesus is overjoyed to, to welcome sinners. And I think this is amazing. John is joyful watching sinners come to Christ and Jesus being joyfully welcomed them. Um, and so John says, this joy of mine, this joy, this great joy has been made full. Um, and some of your translations um, may render this a little different. The New King James, I know, translates this. This joy of mine has been fulfilled. And in my mind, there seemed to be a difference between made full and fulfilled. And so I thought about this and, and studied this out more. It seems in my mind, fulfilled seems to, me, to merely indicate the presence of the joy or that this joy has come, where made full seems to describe the quality of the joy present or quality or quantity. And so I rest, which one is it here? And in the Gospel of John, the Greek word meaning to be filled or to fulfill is used in combination with the word joy a total of four times. And in, in the NASB, all four of those times are translated made full. And in the New King James, two of those times is translated may be full, and two of the times is translated fulfilled. And as I thought and studied this, I think maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but I think um, what he's really going after is the is that it would be, I like the uh, rendering made full better. And as I picture this, I, I see this as like a, a picture a jar, like a jar of joy, and that this joy is now made full. And it's complete, as some of the other, it's, and so this is fulfilled. It's like saying, my life has been fulfilled. It's great. It's full of joy. And so I think that's what G- John's saying here. He says, this joy of mine is maximum, supreme joy in watching sinners um, find their Savior. Uh, and then he, uh, I just love this, and he says at the end in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And these may be John's last recorded words in this whole Gospel of John. We're not sure. The next, the next uh, verses 31 through uh, 36 of John chapter 3, those could either be John's words or they could be John the Apostle's words. But either way, 
Uh, we see John fading from the storyline. When Jesus taking over, John fades into the background. Jesus in, continues to increase in popularity and fame. And in a short matter of time, John the Baptist will be in prison. So John was merely a messenger, a pointer to Christ. And John knew his role. John knew Jesus was, was um, the Lamb of God. He was happy pointing to him. He was happy deflecting all honor and glory to him. And as John humbles himself before the Lord of glory, don't miss what happens here. As he says, I, he must increase. But he's also saying, my joy is made full. And I just think this is an amazing thing. As, um, as John, as people leave John's party, as his followers leave, um, I just think this is so contradictory to our world today. I think we are so wrapped up in as getting the most people to like us, the most people uh, to follow us, be attracted to us, to create this big crowd that's all about us. I mean, that's what we want. We want fame. But, but rather, John here, he, he's saying, no, let them leave. Let, them, let all these people leave and go to Jesus. It's much better that they go to Jesus. And actually, my, it's, I'm just overjoyed in seeing them go to Jesus. And so again, this is my main point here. Intense joy is found in humble Christ-exalting obedience to God, specifically in pointing sinners to Christ. Um, and this, again, this is just so contrary to what we see today. And so just to, just to think back again about what was happening here, we have these two baptismal ministries of John and Jesus. And at first, all of Judea and all of Jerusalem was going out to follow John. And now, over time, people are leaving, and they're beginning to go to Jesus, and rightly so. And John's disciples are rattled about it. They don't think it's fair. They, they see their power diminishing along with their leader's power. But, but John is thrilled um, at this happening. He's filled with joy. Um, and so as I kind of begin to wind down here, I'd like to look at another verse in Matthew regarding John the Baptist. So look with me to Matthew 11. And this is a famous verse re um, regarding John. But Matthew 11, 11. And Jesus here says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen any greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that's an amazing thought. That, uh, Jesus, Jesus himself saying, no one greater than John the Baptist. And, and I just thought, why was John so great? What did John do? What, did, what, was, what made John so great? And I think it was that he so well fulfilled his ministry. He was so faithful to his task of preparing the way. I mean, he was zealous. He was all about it. He was separate from the world, sold out for God. And he pleaded with people to repent and get their life ready for the coming of the Messiah. And so John is, a, an ex, is an example of radical obedience to God. And so I just want us to think that we have, begin, we have been given clear commands as well. We've been given clear tasks. And I just, as I ran through, what are some of the commandments that we've been given as Christians, as the church today? Um, and I just thought, well, um, one of the, I mean, the greatest commandment that Pastor Brian preached on last week is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, that's a clear command. Um, we're also commanded in Mark 1 to repent and believe the gospel. Um, in John chapter 3, we are commanded to love one another. In Matthew 28, we are commanded to make disciples. In 2 Corinthians 7, we are commanded to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. And in Ephesians 5, um, we are commanded to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I think this, the list goes on and on in the New Testament. All, all of the commands we've been be given... And I think if we're honest, 
We often fail to do these commands for a whole host of reasons. And probably the biggest is that we're still sinners in desperate need of grace. Um, But I think if we can learn one lesson from John the Baptist here tonight is that in our humble obedience, there is great joy to be found. As we look at all of these commands that we've been given, there is great joy to be found in humble obedience, in Christ-exalting obedience. And I often think, and as, as I meet with people, I hear, well, if I really dedicate my life to following Christ, I'll have to give up so much. I, I mean, just, I, I would like to do that, but it's just so hard. I got so many other things going for me, going for me right now. I'm just too busy, or I don't have time. So I, I can't really be sold out for Christ right now. I can't really take up my cross right now. Um, but I just... I just think John the Baptist here shows us differently. And I, another verse I thought of was John 5, 3. And it says this, for, the love, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And don't miss this, his commandments are not burdensome. I mean, they're, they're easy. They're light. And Psalms 40, verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. I delight, I treasure it. It's my joy to be obedient and so much, much joy comes to the heart that says, he must increase, I must decrease. And John got this. He was a great example of this. Um, but let us not forget the second half of Matthew 11, 11. And it says, I'll read the whole verse again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he so the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, the, greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. So there's something that we have that John didn't quite fully grasp. And I think that's a full view of gospel forgiveness and gospel redemption. Um, one commentary I read says this, quote, The weakest Christian is greater in privilege than the greatest of the Old Testament saints. John could preach repentance, but the joys of redemption he knew nothing about. And he could preach re- repentance all day, but the joys of redemption he knew nothing about. He did not have this full picture of the life of Jesus, of this suffering servant going to the cross to pay for our, pay for our redemption. In a sense, all, John and all the Old Testament saints were limited in their joy as the friend of the bridegroom and not seeing their own selves and not seeing their own sinful selves redeemed by this, the grace that we find in Christ and on the cross. They, they lack this clear picture of the gospel that we have today. And, and maybe this kept John, in a sense, from seeing himself in his own analogy as part of the bride. And, you know, I think it's just interesting that John never did, you know, quit his ministry and go follow Jesus. He was faithful to his fa- task, and I thought maybe he never did, you know, he didn't quite see it. He didn't quite see the whole picture. Um, he never saw him. Uh, he never made his way over to committing his life to following Christ. And I think as Christians, we kind of fill both roles. We should always be the friend of the bridegroom, the servant of Christ, but we should also always see ourselves as the bride. Um, we are still, you know, we serve him as saints, but we're also sinners who are saved by him. And I, and I just think that we must, we must live in that world between both those things. Saints who are on a mission but sinners who have been saved and still in need of grace. And in closing tonight, I wanted to just hit 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10, I think wraps both these ideas up so well. And I'll just read this to you. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. For you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so tonight, let us revel or take great joy in the fact that we were once in the darkness, but God called us out into his marvelous light. And now we are the people, this people for God's own possession that received mercy. And let us also know that there is great joy in proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of this darkness. And so there's great joy to be found in saying with our life, he must increase, I must decrease. And would that just be the goal of all of our lives, to glorify Christ and see him magnified? And so bow with me as I close in prayer here. And I just want to say as we close, if there's anyone here who doesn't quite get what it means to even be a Christ follower and you haven't yet followed, devoted their life to following Christ, I just want to invite you um, to believe the gospel. Uh, Jesus was a man who was God in human flesh that walked the earth and lived a perfect life and then died on our behalf. And the gospel is very clear. You must believe and repent and turn to him. So if there's anyone here who hasn't done that, I just invite you to believe the good news. Believe that Jesus' death was enough for you. That God saw that as Jesus dying in your place. Um, so dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this example that we have in John the Baptist. We, 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 we just admire the joy that he found in seeing people leave him, God. And I pray that that would be just on all of our hearts, Lord, that we would be about seeing people go to Christ and that we would be just satisfied in that and satisfied as being in the background, watching people go to Christ, Lord. And we, we just want to live there, Father. We want to live and just let you reign in our lives and be glorified in our lives, Father. Um, you are what our lives are all about, Father. And we just long for the day when we'll be taken from this earth and we'll be brought into your presence. And there we will be in the fullness of joy with eternal pleasures forevermore. And God, we're just thankful that you saved us and that you redeemed us. Um, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would just make us zealous like John was zealous for your glory and for your honor. And may we decrease and you increase. And I just pray this in Jesus' name.